Please take your Bibles this evening and turn to Galatians chapter 6. Verses 6 through 10 this evening in Galatians 6. Teachers among you. We are quickly coming to the end of our time in Galatians. Paul has been teaching very passionate lessons about the gospel. The dangers of a false gospel of legalism. The divine solution to the temptation of legalism found through a grace-filled life of walking in the Spirit of God. Vindicating his own ministry among those who have sought to slight him or to demean his ministry as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Last time we were together, Paul shared the necessity of restoring a brother that had been taken in a fault and bearing the burdens that fellow believers face within the assembly. On the heels of this charge to bear one another's burdens, we find a heightened exhortation unto support. One that goes beyond the the spiritual and rests well upon the physical and specifically directed towards those who teach the church the word of God. The Bible says this beginning in Galatians chapter 6 verse 6. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. We'll walk through this text together this evening. It begins with a definitive command. Just as Paul imperatively commanded that the spiritual restore those who are overtaken in a fault, so too Paul imperatively commands the taught that they communicate unto the teachers in all good things. The word communicate in the original Greek speaks of sharing or distributing, has a, a strongly active idea, a, a action-oriented idea. I mentioned already that this is, this is an imperative command. In the Greek, we would call it an imperative command. It is a command. It's not just a suggestion. It is a command. And, and it has a, a very um, action-oriented idea to it. The English word communicate uh, has come to simply mean to speak, right? If I say, uh, I'm not communicating well today, which from time to time I do, uh, typically what, what I would mean by that is that the the words that are coming out of my mouth I don't feel are expressing properly what I'm trying to get across. However, as we really think about the word communicate, we understand that it has a much broader meaning than simply the words that come out of our mouth, doesn't it? In fact, according to many studies in public speaking and in speaking in general, only about 7% of any message that you convey is conveyed through words. 38%, they say, is the vocal tone with which you give those words. 55% are nonverbal elements, such as posture, expression, and gesture. 
So on any given Sunday morning, something around half of my communication is my demeanor and my gestures and my posture. Something around another third or a little bit more than that is the vocal tone that I'm using as I preach. And then the rest of that, whatever's left over, are actually the words that I'm saying. Now, of course, as communication goes from behind the pulpit, uh, I have the distinct advantage of, uh, we have the distinct advantage of the Holy Spirit, right? Which um, takes whatever degree of communication I give uh, through whatever elements and, and passes it through the truth and teaches us all things. And, and the Holy Spirit can teach things that I'm not even trying to communicate through what I'm saying and through the Word of God. So I thank the Lord for that. But, but as we consider the idea of communication, so much of communication is not what we say. It's how we say it or what we're doing. As a matter of fact, uh, we have the old adage, right? Actions speak louder than words. Actions speak louder than words. And we use that in all sorts of contexts to tell people you can't just say things. You have to do things. And doing is oftentimes more impacting than saying. Actions speak louder than words. We also, you know, as we consider this uh, saying, reminds us um, that the dynamics of communication are as much action as they are speaking. So, as the King James translators utilize the word communicate in this context, let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth. We're not speaking inherently, let those that are taught talk to those who teach. It's let those that are taught act toward those who teach. So we've talked about the action. Now let's talk about the people involved. Paul says, let him that is taught communicate unto him that teacheth. Let the person receiving the teaching, the communication of the teacher, let that person distribute unto the one who is giving the teaching. And the topic here is how the taught treat their teacher. Now, I trust that the importance of this command in light of the context and content of the epistle of Galatians is not lost on you. Here Paul is denouncing a false teacher in their midst, right? That's what he's been doing. He's been talking against a false teacher, against a false doctrine. He has just told them that they need to, that they need to restore those who had been overtaken in this false doctrine, in these faults. Paul has stated his wish that those false teachers who trouble them would have been cut off from them, would have been removed from their midst. But it seems that Paul, anticipating the, the kind of strong blowback that the Galatian believers might have against these false teachers, wanted at the same time to, to temper their reaction, we might say, so as not to affect the true teachers in the church. In other words, Paul is giving them these statements so that as they react against the false teachers, cutting them off and making sure that they had no platform for their false teaching, Paul didn't want that reaction to overflow into the true teachers and to, to be a reaction against both the false and the true teachers that were among them. Reactionary thinking is uh, about as common as, as it gets when it comes to humanity. Christians are no less immune. When a, when a Christian has spent time under a false teacher, loved and supported them, when they realize that they've been fleeced, when they've been taken in, when they've been taken advantage of, their reaction might be to never trust another teacher again. 
So they react not just against the false teachers, but against the true teachers as well. And this is not an uncommon thing. As a matter of fact, we've had people come and go, and uh, people that I've spoken to who have come to church and, and have been so deeply hurt by false teachers that they, they refuse to trust another teacher. And what a shame it is sometimes that, that, I mean, certainly that there are these false teachers and how hurt people are by them, but, but it's also a shame when a person feels so hurt that they can never again trust someone and, and, and they are depriving themselves of the blessing and, and the responsibility of being placed under a, a true teacher of, of the Word of God because of the poor experiences they've had in the past. But, but you see the problem here, right? Perhaps we could relate this to experiences we might have had, maybe uh, as a child if you had siblings. Perhaps you or... Um, one of your siblings did something very wrong and uh, when your parents found out the punishment that they handed down didn't just punish the offender, it, it punished everyone. Maybe the sibling watched something wrong on TV so they, they, get, they, they, they lock the TV out for everyone or, or a sibling misused a toy so the parent takes away the toy for everyone. In those situations, the other siblings think, well, why am I being punished for something that my siblings did? And they, there's this, this tendency to... Um, react against, to overreact, right? Uh, against even those that didn't do something wrong because of something that one has done wrong. It's a human tendency in every avenue of life to react against those who have harmed us by reacting not just against those but against everyone. So what is Paul teaching here? Well, within this context, Paul is helping them remember that if there are good teachers among them, and, and no doubt there were, those who had stayed true to the Word of God, um, we know that there were those who are spiritual yet in their midst. Paul's encouraging them to still support those true teachers, even in the midst of whatever backlash there might be against these false teachers. And this concept is taught definitively in several epistles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9-11, through 11, the Bible says, For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen? Or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes no doubt this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and that he that thresheth in hope should be a partaker of this hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things... Is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? Paul uses the, an Old Testament principle from Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 4 in this passage that a man should not muzzle the mouth of the ox, that is the, the ox treading the corn. And it relates, and, and he says here that he, that he relates this to the ministers of God. So in the law, the idea was that if an ox was out in the field as a part of the harvesting of the corn... If he was out working, then the laborer ought to allow the ox to eat of that corn in the field. It's wrong, God to, said, to withhold from the ox the ability to be sustained off of the labor that he is providing. And Paul says that this principle was not just given for ox, for oxen, but for the sake of mankind as well. That the laborer is worthy of his hire. It's a biblical principle that we can learn from. The principle is that when a man devotes his, his life and his ministry to something, or in, in the carnal case, if a man devotes himself to a, a job, he has every right to expect compensation. 
for that job. He has every right to expect that he should be able to live off of the fruit of his labor. That to whatever degree he's laboring, he should respect a fair compensation. In the spiritual sense, and that's, what, that's how Paul is using it here, he says that if a man devi- devotes his life and his ministry to the ministry of spiritual things, a ministry which has no natural monetary or physical return, it is expected that God's people who truly understand the essential nature of a minister's spiritual work would provide for him. In most fields, your labor gives back to you. In most fields, you put in physical labor and that physical labor comes with monetary reward. The minister is not like that. His physical labor goes into spiritual reward. His physical labor goes into spiritual change. And as such, Paul says, is it a great thing if those who sow to the spiritual can reap the carnal? Interestingly enough, in this passage, Paul is uh, highlighting the fact that he did not ask for that provision. In 1 Corinthians 9, As he says this, he goes on to say, but we didn't ask that of you. We had every right to ask of you physical provision, but we did not ask that of you. And and Paul tells why. The ministry he had chosen, and he had chosen within the scope of this ministry, to refuse, to not allow the church to support him, in much the same way many missionaries go to the foreign field, and they don't allow the, the people on the foreign field to support them. They have churches back home supporting them. The Lord is supporting them in different ways. And they go to the people and they do not ask the people for physical support. And they do that for, for very particular reasons based upon the field and the, and the particular needs of that field. And that's the minister's right. It's the minister's right to refuse material compensation for his labor. But on the authority of God's word, it is not the right of those unto whom the man is ministering to withhold physical support from him. A similar and even more pointed lesson is taught by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, where he says this, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. And then he invokes the same passage. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Paul uses the same Old Testament passage, Deuteronomy 25 4, about muzzling the ox that treadeth the corn, and he combines it with another Old Testament passage. That, that phrase, the laborer is worthy of his reward, is found in Leviticus 19.13. And this time, far more than just pointing to ministers, Paul specifically highlights the role of the teacher. And that those who labor in word and doctrine are worthy, he says, of double honor. Those elders, and that word elder is the same as pastor or bishop in the, in the scriptures. Those elders who rule well, especially those who teach, are worthy of a double honor amongst God's people. Now, Timothy never fully lays out, or the, the, the book of Timothy, Paul is the one writing, he never fully lays out what it means 
that the laborer, that the minister is worthy of a double honor. Um, I don't think there's a set way that we can determine what is a double honor. I don't think that it's necessarily even meaning it explicitly in like a two times type idea. I think it simply means that the man who labors in, in word and in doctrine is worthy of great honor among the assembly. The idea is that God's people ought to highly esteem the man who is teaching them, accurately, faithfully teaching them the word of God. He ought to be precious unto them. He ought to be honored among them. He ought to be taken care of. And that's what Paul says. He says it in 1 Corinthians 9. He says it in 1 Timothy 5. The citizens of this country have a natural and appropriate esteem for our military veterans. Those who have fought in times past to secure and protect the rights with which we have in this nation are esteemed among the citizens. And when, as we have learned in, in this past decade, these veterans are mistreated, as we've learned about the VA scandal and such, there is a deep sense of wrong that overcomes the citizens of this nation, and rightfully so, that these men and women have served their country with distinction and they are worthy of the honor that comes with their service. In the Christian realm, those soldiers, the, the idea parallels to the minister. That the ministers are those who are going above and beyond. <laughs> that the ministers are on the front lines of this battle. And just as the United States citizen would hold in high esteem those men and women who serve their country, so too the citizens of God's kingdom ought to hold in high esteem those teachers who are faithful in their calling. We continue. And a similar idea is also given in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13, where Paul again writes, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. Paul says to identify those among them in the church who labor and lead them in the Lord, who admonish them. This would be those that teach them. These would be their teachers and their pastors. And Paul says that the church ought to esteem them very highly in love for the sake of the work that they are doing in the body. Once again, ministers, according to the word of God, are worthy of honor. Now, as we say these things, let's be sure to mention what Paul is not trying to teach. The Bible tells us that we are all just men, that we are all sinners, that in Christ there's no male or female, there's no bond nor free, there's no Jew or Gentile, we are all one in Christ. Paul is not advocating some sort of spiritual idolatry or spiritual hierarchy here. Uh, he's not advising a system where, where the man of God is, is revered. Okay? The man, where the man of God is worshipped. Where the man of God can do no wrong. Where, uh, where the man of God cannot be questioned. Uh, the, there's the, the idea in, in some circles where the, the people just fawn over the teacher of God's word. The pastor uh, begins to expect adulation and special favors. He's given a pass where others would not. He's given special treatment. The Bible doesn't say that. That's not what it means to honor the teacher of the word of God, to honor the pastors, the elders. This is not honor. 
when a church begins to fawn over the pastor, when the pastor becomes elevated, when he begins to, to be able to get away with things that other people would not be able to get away with, uh, when there's a double standard forming, um, when no one questions him regardless of how questionable his actions are, this is not honor, this is idolatry. And idolatry, in any context, particularly in the church, is wrong. The pastor is not to become an idol. The pastor is not even really, in, this, in, in a sense, if I may say it this way, the pastor is not to become a hero. He's to be a man respected for the sake of the work that he does and his faithfulness and humility within that work. And often the men worthy of the most honor, the men who perform their duty the best, are the men who find and seek the least recognition for it. The minister ought not be out looking for or demanding this honor. It's a privilege of God's people to honor the man who is faithful. The, the man of God should not be out seeking that honor. Likewise, the minister ought to ought not expect this honor simply because he is called pastor or because he has been ordained. The honor is earned through faithfulness. It is not conferred by a title. Now, as Paul continues in verses 7 and 8, notice what he says. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. A couple of weeks ago, I used these verses and applied it to sin and to the consequences of sin. That in every avenue of God's design, God will not be mocked. He will not be ridiculed. We will reap what we sow. And those applications are, are appropriate. We see the sowing and reaping principle in every aspect of the Christian life. Whether um, it's sin or whether it's giving or wh whatever it might be, we see the sowing and reaping principle work itself out. Paul's direct meaning, however, the direct meaning of verses 7 and 8 of this sowing and reaping principle within the context of Galatians is within the context of providing for the needs of the minister. And the message is this. Just as with any other area of life that God has designed, His design is unimpeachable. The way He has framed this world, His economy is going to come to pass. Though Paul speaks in the realm of giving, it's likely no coincidence that he has just spent time in chapter 5 talking about the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, right? He talks here about the man sowing to his flesh will of his flesh reap corruption. The man sowing to his spirit will of the Spirit reap life everlasting. We talk about sin having consequences. We talk about seeking first the kingdom of God. And here Paul says this, into what you sow will be unto what you reap. If you invest in the material realm, you'll get out of it the corruptible things that money can buy. But also, if you, if you invest into your flesh, your sin, your sinful flesh, you will reap the results of sin. If you invest, however, into the spirit, in the spirit realm, obedience and the word of God and the will of God, you will get out of it the blessings of the spirit of God upon you. 
Likewise, if you walk in the Spirit, you will reap the results, the fruit of the Spirit. Where you invest is where you will be rewarded. If you want spiritual reward, invest in spiritual endeavors. Invest your time. Invest your loyalty. Invest your love. Invest your obedience. Invest your money in that which is spiritual. And the Bible says you will reap from that. One of these spiritual endeavors, the one Paul is focusing on here, is the care and support of the man of God who has been tasked with communicating unto you the Word of God. And Paul uses that principle to say that if you invest in the spiritual, you will reap the spiritual. Interestingly enough, what Paul is saying here is that to whatever degree you invest in the man of God, the Lord will bring about spiritual blessing upon you. And within this direct context, Paul's words in verse 9 are very important. He says, And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap, if we faint not. Paul exhorts them not to be weary in well-doing, that though it can sometimes be discouraging to do right, to sow into the Spirit, right? To plant into the Spirit, to do that which is right. We talked this morning about truth. And as we talked about truth, we recognize that truth is not always convenient. And truth is not always what makes people the most happy. But that if we trust that God's way is the way, and if we trust the truth of God's word, if we believe it, then we know that if we're on the side of truth, that that is where God's blessing is. Sowing and reaping. If we sow into truth, if we tell the truth, even if... On the short term, it means a a lower grade. Or even on the short term, if it means less money in our bank account. Or if it means we don't get that job. All of which because we told the truth. But if we tell the truth, if we sow into the, the righteous, then what we can expect to come back, what we can expect to grow is righteousness. If we sow to the flesh, if we tell that lie to get ahead, what we can know is that out of our lies is going to grow a little bit of spiritual death. That that lie, that, that unrighteousness, it's going to grow in our lives unto a lack of spiritual blessing, unto the carnal. And so Paul says, don't be weary in well-doing, because it can be wearying, can't it? To do right. To always do right. And in this context, you know, they, the, the church had just been ravaged by false teaching. And even though they had just been taken advantage of by a false teacher, even though they were discouraged at at sticking to the stuff and doing right, this does not mean that they should hold these things against those who had faithfully stood upon the Word of God. Don't hold your frustration against these false teachers against these good teachers. Don't be weary in well-doing. Don't be so weary in well-doing that you, you fail to do right by these teachers. Who have, who have been faithful. Who have done it right. Let me just uh, come out of the church for a moment. If, if, if the church that, that's here will bear with me. I'm talking to people on the internet and I'm talking to people on YouTube as well. And it might be that there's some of the people on watching this on YouTube or listening on the internet who are no longer in a local church. And you're no longer in a local church because you've been alienated. You've been alienated by false teachers. 
And that may have been a similar danger among the Galatian believers where they had been so alienated by the false teachers in their midst that maybe they were ready to just stop. But you know, God has a design. And in God's design, we're to be a part of a local body of believers, a member of the body of Christ, doing the work of Christ. And it can be tough and discouraging and wearying, but Paul says, don't be weary in well-doing. For in due season, he says, you will reap if you faint not. The investment that we make into the obedience to God's word will be reaped in its due season. That doesn't always mean right away. And sometimes in certain contexts of life, as we think of this principle, it may not even mean this lifetime. But as we consider God's design, the overriding principles of God's economy, we know that whatever time, effort, and money we put into the spiritual, it will abound back toward us. Now notice carefully the word which is translated due season here, because this will matter. It's the Greek word kairos, literally meaning a set time or a proper time. Due season is a good translation. King Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 1, To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under the heaven. And he'd go on in verse 11 to say, He hath made everything beautiful in his time. There is a due season, a set and proper time whereby we reap the spiritual blessings, if we sow into the Spirit. Paul then extends this application. Notice what he says in verse 10. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. And as I read that, take note of the word opportunity. Because that word opportunity is the same Greek word that we just saw in verse 9, translated due season. So beyond just those who, are, who teach the word of God, Paul says that in this season that we have, in, there, there's a season for reaping, but there's also a season for sowing. There's a due season to reap, but you're not going to have that reap. You're not going to receive unless first you sow. There's a due season for sowing and there's a due season for reaping. Within the sowing and reaping of economy of God, it plays out like this. We have a season where we are followers of Christ. We're connected to a body of believers. We're living in the material world under a human government under human economies. This world is our abode, but it's not our home. We're sojourners in a land that is not our own. And for this time, God has given us a season to do good unto all men, and especially to do good unto the household of faith. This is our season to love our enemies. It's our season to bless them that curse us. It's our season to pray for them that would use us. Uh, but in this world, God has also given us a family. Right? God has placed us into a carnal world that is going in the direction that is opposite to us as kingdom citizens. We're citizens of a heavenly home. We're sojourning in a strange land that is not our own. They operate by different rules. We're in, we're, we're in, a, in a kingdom that is, is, is overrun by Satan. 
It's Satan's kingdom, and we're operating as children of God's kingdom within the midst of Satan's kingdom. But in this kingdom, we've been given a family. We've been given a sanctuary. Brothers and sisters in Christ who are bound to us in the unity of the Spirit. Men and women who share our love for God, our recognition of divine priorities, who share our kingdom principles, who are also citizens of a heavenly kingdom, the household of faith. Paul says, as you have opportunity, this is your season. As you're you're desiring to reap spiritual things, as you're desiring to reap all the blessings that God has promised you, this is your season to plant. And so as you have that opportunity, that, that season of time, do good to all men, but also have a heightened desire, a greater desire to bless those who are, who are, who are of the household of faith. And then we take that to what we learned in Timothy, that the elders who rule well among you are worthy of a double honor. And in this season, bless them. Do right by them. Our priority should always lean toward our family in Christ. And as Paul just mentioned, and it has been reiterated in no less than three other epistles, those who are called upon to teach this family, to execute their office faithfully, are worthy of the carnal things. They're worthy of honor among the brethren. We've seen several sermons lately that have focused our attention on the reality of God's operation, how God works in this world, God's economy, if we could call it that. There's a way that God works. His will in this world and within the broader scope of this life and the next, not only are God's purposes never frustrated, but God's design is never frustrated. This evening, Paul's focus has been upon providing for the physical and material needs of those who labor in doctrine among you. And God's will is that you as the church would provide for your pastor and for his material needs. Now, as your pastor, that sounds excessively self-serving. Um, I, you, you all know I hate preaching these messages from that, that standpoint. I hate getting up here and telling you that it's your responsibility to provide for me. Uh, Our church doesn't even have a problem in that area. But this is what the Bible says. And this is where we are, so this is what we're saying. And, And you need to hear it, because it's what the Bible says. As we take a step out, though, into broader application, we saw Paul state that we are to do good to all men within this season. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. But I'd like us to go one step broader still this evening, and in two distinct directions. First, I'd like to make this point very clear. As we consider the sowing and reaping principle, sowing and reaping, it's a warning here, that sowing and reaping is not the same thing as karma. The New Age spirituality of our day is deeply into the concept of karma. It's become very prevalent even in spiritual circles today. Karma is a word 
that means action, work, or deed. It's found in several Near Eastern religions such as Hinduism and Buddhism. The idea of karma is that you get out of this world what you put into this world. That if you put into this world effectively positive energy, positive thinking, positive thoughts, positive actions, then you will receive positive things back from this world. Teaching of karma is, as, as many of the devil's lies are, a perversion of this exact principle we're talking about this evening. Satan likes to take the principles of God's word and just twist them enough to make them wrong, but give them enough truth to make them sound right and put them back out there. I was talking uh, earlier today with, with someone in the church about this idea of how Satan likes to twist these concepts and to make them almost right, but not right. And we were talking about the word fear. And the Bible says there is no Fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that is perfect, or he, he um, is, um, I believe, uh, he that is perfect is not made perfect uh, through fear. Or I, I'm not exactly sure how the verse ends, but the idea that fear, that there's no fear in love. And so the New Age spirituality has taken this idea and, and, and said, we, we ought not fear anything, we need not fear anything. And it has made it humanistic to where you don't even have to fear God. Whereas the biblical teaching is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That, that reverence, that respect, that understanding that God is God and that we are not God is essential to wisdom. And that is how New Age spirituality can take a concept from the Bible and can twist it out of context and pervert it just enough to make it us not be able to... It, the red flag doesn't pop up immediately. But as you dig down to what they're actually saying, you realize it's false. Such is the case with karma as opposed to the sowing and, and reaping principle. They are not the same thing. The differences, while subtle, are also very definitive. The idea of karma is wrapped around the concept of morality and human interest. It takes the idea of human consequence and sowing and reaping and it perverts it for the pagan mind. It teaches that positive actions or intentions always come back sooner or later in positive reaction toward you. And the same for negative intentions and actions. It's a, it's, it's a works-based idea. Some levels of karma even preach that these positive reactions will abound in the next life. So, of course, having to do with reincarnation, when you think of Hinduism and Buddhism and such. So, uh, like with the Eastern religions, some form of, uh, of, of reincarnation where the good things that I do in this life are investing into my next life so that I can become something better. So that if I'm kind of not really what I like in this life, if I invest in it and I'm good to people and I'm kind and I put a bunch of positive energy into the world, then when I come back, that positive energy will make me something, maybe a richer person or a more powerful person or um, a, you know, a higher class of, of reincarnation. And perhaps how you can see how Satan has taken these important concepts and, and perverted them into error. Here are the problems with the false idea of karma. First, karma misses the standard by which actions and intentions are judged. Okay? Karma does not operate on the principles of God's economy. It operates under the principles of humanistic moralism. That the good which a person puts into this world is the humanistic kind of good. 
Not, not good in the eyes of God, but good in your eyes, or good in the eyes of society. In the eyes of sinful men, in the eyes of a sinful world, sin is often seen as good, right? And so you're, you're putting the good, society's definition of good, out there in hopes of receiving some good in return. In a world where every man does that which is right in his own eyes, karma cannot rightly define the right actions or intentions which bring about reward, which bring about the positive reactions or the positive results. Karma teaches a universal consciousness that states the world is, is a balance. So when evil is put into the world, that evil is balanced by this evil happening back to the person that committed it. The same would go for good. As this world is in balance, you put good in, you get good out. You put bad in, you get bad out. But, but the sowing and reaping principle is based entirely differently. It's based upon the decrees of a true and living God. And it operates entirely within the context of His design. It's not about balance. It's about justice. It's, it's about obedience. The scriptures, as absolute truth, tell us what actions and intentions bring about spiritual reward... And those are the, the actions and intentions which are according to God's word. So karma completely misses the standard. The standard of truth, God's word. Karma sees it as an ambiguous idea based upon human morality, based upon societal conduct, based upon perception. Second problem with karma. It misses the context of good and evil. Karma overlooks one of the basic tenets of the sin-cursed world. That sin destroys. We're living in a world that is predisposed to evil. The negative consequences of evil. David, J Job, Solomon, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, among other Old Testament writers, lamented the reality that bad things happen to good people. That the righteous suffer while evil prevails. That's why Paul had to write, and be not weary in well-doing. Right? Because evil prevails. And that's frustrating. Isn't it? And karma misses that. Karma misses the idea that bad things happen to good people. Karma also misses the concept of redemption. That in Christ, those who have done unspeakable evil can be forgiven. And their sins will not be recompensed back to them. That one day you and I will not suffer the eternal consequences of our sin through Christ. If, if karma was a thing, some of us in this room would be in pretty bad shape. As far as what you've put into this world, right? If you had no chance... To receive anything but what you've put into this world to this point. You'd be in pretty bad shape, wouldn't you? Some of you. I mean, by God's standard, all of us. By the world's standard, some of us. Karma misses the reality that in Christ, you can be released. You can be forgiven. Redemption is the great theological wrench in karma. 
Christ has purchased our redemption with his blood so that we do not receive what we deserve according to our sin. Karma misses the concept of good and evil because karma misses the God of the Bible who is not only just and holy, but he is also gracious, merciful, and long-suffering. Sowing and reaping connects us to God's divine order, but it is a spiritual concept that cannot be detached from God's expectations, from God's character, or from God's divine plan. So sowing and reaping is not karma. And we need to know that. When people talk about karma, or when they talk about putting positive energy in and receiving positive energy out, being a good person so that you'll have good things come back to you, sowing and reaping is when you put into God's system, when you put into the spiritual, you reap the spiritual. When you put into the sinful, you reap the sinful. When you put into the material, you reap the material. When you put into the spiritual, you reap the the, the spiritual. That's the sowing and reaping principle. That's God's design. That's not karma. The second point here, first, sowing and reaping is not karma. Second and finally, God's system is absolute. God's system is absolute. We sow what we reap in every context of life. Pastor, you just said we aren't treated according to our sin. That's right. But God did not ignore his system, did he? God did not ignore his system. Your redemption is not God breaking his own rules. Did you know that? You being saved and being forgiven for your sins is not God breaking the sowing and reaping principle. It's not God ignoring justice, is it? Jesus Christ bore your sin, bore your penalty, bore your debt. It's not that God just pretended it didn't exist. God doesn't forgive you on the basis of being forgetful or, uh, or just ignoring his justice or ignoring his system, God has forgiven you on the basis of what he did to his son, Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago. God forgives you on the basis of the fact that Jesus Christ was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, that the chastisement of our peace was upon him, that with his stripes we are healed. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. So God's system is still in play. We've been redeemed. We've been forgiven. On the basis of Jesus Christ's suffering. But there are so many avenues of life where mankind, even many Christians, are tirelessly attempting to skirt, to get around, to dodge this system of sowing and reaping. God's design for marriage. God's design for family. Uh, he, he designed God's he, marriage. He designed its formation. One man and one woman. He designed its headship. The man leads the woman. The woman submits to the man. He designed its permanence. Marriage is a lifelong commitment. God designed the family. He designed its formation. A father and a mother and children. He designed its headship. Children, obey your parents. He designed its operations. Parents, teach and nurture your children. God designed the church. He designed its formation. Made up of spirit and dwelled believers. He designed its headship. Led by the called men of God. He designed its purpose to edify and increase itself in love. God makes the rules. And we live in the rules. And the degree to which we find spiritual success is the degree to which we identify and align ourselves with God's will, with God's rules. And whenever we reject God's way, 
we sow to the flesh, we plant the flesh instead of planting the spirit, here's what you can know. That what you sow is what you will reap. That what you plant is what is going to grow. In the context of Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, Paul says, plant into the man of God your carnal things and watch how God will then sow, reap. You'll, you will reap. Watch how God will grow in you spiritual things. In the context of sin, in the context of obedience, in the context of God's design, it, it, it's always the same. That if you do it God's way, the, the, the way that is right before God, the spiritual, you will reap the spiritual benefits. If you plant into the flesh, that's what you will reap. May God help us this evening. That as we are sowing and as we are reaping, we would have a, a particular understanding, part, and specifically as we just came out of talking about the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, that we would have a particular understanding of what is fleshly and what is spiritual, and that we would invest our time, our energy, our money, our priority on those things which are spiritual, knowing this, that if we are not weary in well-doing, we will reap if we faint not. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for um, the opportunity once again to tell uh, these dear men and women in the Lord what the Word of God says. I pray that it would have come across clear, understandable. I ask that uh, you would hide my words behind the truths of your Word through your Holy Spirit. Uh, that anything that I said that might have been confusing would be um, uh, interpreted and understood through your spirit, um, that you would help each man and woman and child in this room to understand their place in your economy and how they, are, uh, they ought to live out the sowing and reaping principle, whether um, it, it be in regard to how they act in their family or how they act in the church or how they act in society. Uh, help us to know that we reap what we sow. And help us to understand our relation to those principles. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.